Hey, it's it's a nice time to introduce the podcast <laughs> because nice. we have, <laughs> we've been talking for half an hour, but um, obviously this is this is a good time to introduce because we have our main co-host for this thing. <laughs> hey, Walter. <laughs> Hi. Like, uh, I think your your volume is really really low. Um, bummer. You need to increase the gain or something. Maybe you need to connect a different one. And oh, by the way, Wouter is the magician behind fixing all the audio stuff for us. So it's going to be his problem if he nice. doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, come on. You you can't hear me. Hello, hello. I I can, but you're, you're it's a bit very uh, quiet. Yeah. Uh, I I can see that. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Again on this thing. Not. He's the magician behind um, all the audio stuff, and he's been helping out with Defen as well, like. All the thingies, and we just record. Oh, there we go. There's nice. some gain coming right here. Yeah, this this should be better, right? Okay. Yeah, that's yes. better. An actual awesome. waveform. I've cranked the gain all the way up to the max on my preamp. So um, you got to crank <laughs> it to eleven. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have the cheap one, and it only goes to ten. Yeah, so, see, uh, that's your problem right there. That's your problem you right can't, there. You can't you can't overclock amps. <laughs> Not with that attitude. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> I, I don't know. So, uh, we've been we've been chatting about different things about you know right before you popped in. Um given uh you know there is plenty of things to discuss with um I'm going to try to say this uh, Norwegian name. Jan Ferdinand. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think the, No, I no, the third I'm, one. I'm I'm entertained. <laughs> he, I think young young set something like that. I'm, I, I apologize. You know, no, like, no, no, I, no. I, I really don't. Not at all. Jon Ferdinand Runge Yengset. Yeah. Okay. That's, or that's John Jengset, which is the 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 so, way that it's pronounced in English. Younger <laughs> Yengset, something like that. Runge Yengset. Runge Yengset. Okay, that's two words. Runge. Yengset. 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 All right. Yengset. Yengset. Yeah. Yengset. All right. Yeah, that's, so, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. D- Dutch is close enough. Um, yeah, that's fair. Oh, with that, uh, because right before you joined Water, he was talking about the rolling R. I think Dutch has the rolling R <clears throat> thingy as well, right? Like, probably in French, maybe. I'm not sure fully. No, no. The French has like the, the it's actually the French in French. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the French ooh. is like a little, it's a, uh, different variation of the rolling r yeah no but we it's the, as, as, where i live we i think we have the same r's so it's rrr mm, in the front rrr. of your mouth yeah rrr. okay rrr. Um, rrr. <laughs> exactly <laughs> so, depending on how you do it it's either aggressive or really really smooth yeah oh. that's true <laughs> okay anyway so um now i can properly welcome you jan <laughs> to the <laughs> thank to you the, to the to the podcast because now i have the you know we have the full uh, crew of the podcast now so welcome to are we podcast yet like in the, in the middle of the <laughs> recording <laughs> we are com- total so, professionals as you can see oh, exactly <laughs> <laughs> professional with a rolling r <laughs> then that's what we are that's just the, the intro to the to this podcast episode is all of us just going <laughs> <laughs> i can make that happen if you want to i mean uh <laughs> It should be, it should be the intro and then the you know outro just 
all three of us saying and then just are we podcast yet? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it seems we are. So. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so you know, I'm BJ and then Wouter. So I'm Wouter from Belgium. And we have I'm John from from sort of everywhere. I guess originally Norway. <laughs> I'll, I'll go with John from Norway. John from Norway. Yes. So we we did we did do a bit of a um uh kind of a I walked with John through his journey around the globe a little bit. So that that part is there already. Okay. So right before you're joining, I think he was explaining that he did some his um um uh, thesis in 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 Go, not thesis, but his project in Go. And then how he moved into into Rust. So I know Wouter. Wouter is into uh, Go as well. I think he did some Go stuff, or he's still doing some Go stuff. Still so doing. I think he knows more about Go than I do. So you're comparing Go with with Rust, right? So that that um, that I'm I'm assuming that you uh, not assuming as you mentioned, you were attracted to Rust because of the richer type system and everything. And are you so? What what is the what is the advantage that you think compared to Go? You know, uh, not just the types, but you know, community or the language or the features. Um, I, I think, I think there were a couple of things that I don't know if bothered me about Go is really the right way to phrase it, but that appealed to me about Rust compared to Go was mm. um, partially that I felt like I could affect the language. Um, mm. In Go, uh, there were a couple of times when I felt like something either should be added to the language or where the language made a, a choice I didn't quite agree with or, or something seemed to be missing. And the the path to actually changing Go or Go standard library is is not one that many people take, in part because it it really feels like it's a language that's sort of exported by Google more so yeah. than one that's community built. Um, mm. Whereas the Rust language is very much community built. And I think within like a few months almost of starting to use Rust because this was in the very early days of Rust too. So the, there were a lot of rough edges. I, mm -hmm. I felt like I could engage with the community and and to some extent the, the core community of Rust because it was fairly small um, and, and felt like I could, I could actually have like real impact on the language in some meaningful sense. Like I ran mm. into problems and found that they were real problems in Rust or in the standard library and then I could go try to fix them. Uh, and yeah. that, that appealed to me a lot of, of being able to be um, a part of the process and not just a consumer of the language. Um, mm. and, and I think you can see that effect in the Rust community that's built up now as well. It is a community of people who are very excited about the language, um, sometimes overly so, but but very excited <laughs> about the language, uh, and and who really like care about trying to make that community the best that it can, whether that is the ecosystem of, of all the like crates and such, the documentation, the education part of things, um, or just contributing back to the language and the tools. Um, mm. and, and that that makes me that, that gives me like a warm, fuzzy feeling of, of that yeah, yeah. everyone sort of coming together. Um, on the technical side, I think part of what appealed to me with Rust was, as we talked about, the, the fact that you can use types to express things you just can't really in Go. Um, in Go, uh, like you have types, like it is type checked, it's a statically typed language, but it feels like the types are the same as types in other languages, where it's mm. hard to enforce additional invariants using types. 
right? Mm. Like the, the type system is there so that you can say whether something is a string or a number. Um, it's not there to say um, how, well, that something is kilometers an hour rather than miles per hour, yeah, for yeah, example. Yeah. Or, or or perhaps more helpfully, like in Rust, you have generics, right? You can, you mm. can implement all of the the standard library in Rust, right? Like you don't need special permissions or special integration with the language in order to to use some of the powerful features you need to really build cool, intricate um, data structures and algorithms, for example. Uh, yeah, and, and that appealed to me that that I can I can really take uh, I I really feel like I can implement anything I want in Rust, and I don't quite feel the same in Go. If you want mm. to implement a data structure in Go, for example, it's pretty painful because mm. you can't do things like have trait bounds that say that this type has to be hash and eek, right? Like mm. that appeals to me, and it means that you can build really cool abstractions directly in the type system without them being just a huge pain to use, right? Yeah. If you build some some intricate thing in Go, very often you end up with a lot of runtime errors. Whereas, mm. uh, sorry, in Go, in Rust, if you do the same, you can usually use the type system to express the sort of invariance and constraints of the system so that as long as the caller can work out the types, which is admittedly not always trivial, um, as long as it actually compiles, it is more likely to run correctly. And, yeah. and that that appealed to me. Hmm. So you said that you know you can you can write anything in in Rust you know with much more fluidity and much more you know uh, the the way that that you know you can you can build them easily. But as a, as a beginner uh, in Rust, just, just to be clear, yeah, I don't think yeah. it's more easily. I don't yeah, think yeah. easily is is accurate because mm -hmm. I think it is easier to write things in Go than it is in Rust. Mm, I think yeah. what is. I think the point I'm trying to get at is more that with Rust, I feel like um, I can more accurately describe the thing that I'm building. Yeah. I can more accurately describe its interface uh, in mm -hmm. a way that it's everything is represented in the language rather mm -hmm. than lots of things having to be represented in documentation. Yeah, yeah. The, the way the way I like to Right. The way I like to think of it is like Go feels more like a scripting language with the trade-offs that entails, right? Like it's very quick to get something done and it's it's even quite quick to, you know, if you stay within like the target zone of the language to get something even elaborate that that works really well. But but sort of like the, the quickness comes a bit at the, yeah. Um, it, there's a lot of stuff delegated to runtime as 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 you know scripting long languages tend tend to do right so and that that's um yeah that's a trade off and like rust is definitely like if we can check it at at compile time we will check it at compile time yeah mm. and i think it also gives expressivity like uh to take a, a somewhat simple example imagine that you write a want to write a function that takes an iterator of iterators and collects it into a vector. Mm. And you want to write this function once because its mm. function is fairly straightforward. Like it just it just loops over the things and then loops over all the things inside the things and then stick yeah. them on a vector. In Go, this is really annoying to write. I don't even know whether you can realistically write this with one function. You no. maybe can. But, but in not Rust, generically in any case, right. like you're going to be implementing it for every type you want. Um, you, you could maybe do it using like cast to the interface type 
and then cast back or something. But even then, you couldn't really iterate. Um, maybe you could do this once, like go contracts and stuff, Lance. I, I honestly couldn't tell yeah. you. Um, mm. But in Rust, you can very accurately describe the input to this function, right? You say, uh, I take it, I take, I take some argument of a type that implements iterator, and I want all the item, the item type of that iterator to implement iterator, and those are all the requirements. And yeah. in fact, you can go even further, right? And say that I'm going to be polymorphic in my return type. I can yeah. return anything that can be collected from an iterator. So it doesn't just yeah. have to be VEC. I can collect that into a set if you want. Yeah. And this one function can represent all of that by, by being able to truly express what the input constraints and the output um, sort of guarantees of that or promises of that function are. And, and that yeah. really appeals to me. But isn't it then you're dangerously getting close to like a dynamic typing <laughs> languages where you can just take anything and then return anything? So, so it, but, but that's the beauty of it, right? Is that it's yeah. not dynamically typed. It's statically yeah. typed. So the type checker is smart enough to actually check whether this is the case. I agree mm. that if you tried to do this in, like you could write the flatten function in Ruby too, right? This yeah, is what's exactly. fascinating. <laughs> that you could write it in Ruby, you could write it in Rust, but you cannot really write it in Go. It's fascinating, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, but but yeah. realistically, the difference is that if you did this in Ruby, you would mm. have to document this function really carefully to say what kind of types it's allowed to take in. Because yeah. there's no static enforcement of the fact that you call it with an appropriate type. Yeah. Whereas in yeah. Rust, it is really complicated to get the type right. Or rather, mm. there are a lot of types you can't pass to it. Yes. But you don't have to write it in documentation. You mm. statically express it in the types. And then the type checker tells you at compile time whether you did it right or not. And yeah, because yeah. it knows all that information, it can also give you good error messages saying, this is why this won't work. Yeah. Hmm. And that, I just really like that. Maybe, you know, because speaking about expressive type system and everything, you know, maybe this is the dumbest question that 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 I can think of, or, or, or maybe it's my complete bias or something. Why, why do we have so many blog posts about how to write a linked list in Rust? Ah, so why so everybody this is, keeps writing like you know, how to write an ink list? I'm like, as a beginner in Rust, I'm like, why is this a thing? Because, because they're preparing for the Google entry exam, obviously. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> no, it's actually really funny because in Rust, writing a linked list is really annoying uh, mm. because linked lists are weird. Like, mm -hmm. you don't think about this when you come from Go, you don't think of this when you come from C. Yeah. But in Rust, where ownership of data is such a such a critical like component, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. They're they're really odd. If you think of something like a doubly linked list, mm, right? Yeah. Who mm. owns a particular element of the linked list? Yeah, yeah. Is it the the element after? Is it the element yeah. before? Before, like both yeah. of them have pointers to it, and yeah, it, you're in this really weird world too, where there are two pointers to the object, mm. that, like to any given item in the list, yes. and. That means that, in at least in theory, no one should be allowed to mutate that thing because there are two reference to it, right? Yeah. So you don't have an exclusive reference. So how are you allowed to mutate it? Yet in a, link, a doubly linked list, you are totally allowed to mutate the individual elements. And in fact, you mm. can mutate different elements concurrently, even though the model sort of implies that that shouldn't be true. Um, mm. And so in Rust, the, this ends up being somewhat complicated to encode in the type system because... Uh, mostly because of the borrow checker saying, you haven't told me who the owner is. You can't, 
you can't promise me that there is mm. only one exclusive reference to this thing, and therefore I won't let you mutate it. So you end yeah, up in yeah. this world where you need to use unsafe for something that a lot of people think of as a as a simple data structure, yeah. um, in order to convince Rust that that you actually maintain the invariance that it requires. So mm. a question I have there then, and um, I'm I'm like a, a firm believer in mechanical sympathy, like kind of. Uh, know know the systems underneath you and and like have some sympathy for them just uh and like the thing i'm uh, i'm kind of wondering is like when like doubly linked lists are not not easy to do in rust um and so i i would i would rather think about okay can i rephrase my problem right is it is it really the data structure that i want um, because I sometimes get the feeling like, okay, like we use this data structure because it's kind of easy to think about, like it's easy to fit in our head, like, okay, I've got a list and it's got two pointers. It's easy data structure for a human to reason about, but it's maybe not the most efficient data structure for the problem you're looking at or like, um, and then, so, so like, and then you still have unsafe to sort of like the escape hatch in the case that it is, but like, how often do you think you end up? Um, in a place where, yeah, um, unsafe is the way to go because, you know, what the borrow checker just doesn't allow you to express this versus, well, you can also rethink the problem just because like well, Rust behaves differently and therefore you get, I mean, the, the, the guarantees have some constraints with it, right? Um, and like this is probably true in every language. Like they all have like different things that they give you and therefore different constraints. So I personally think that the doubly linked list is, a straw man in the sense like you probably don't need it as much as you think you do, but I kind of want like want to get your opinion on that. Yeah, I I I would think of first of all, I don't think you should implement your own data structures unless you can prove <laughs> to me that you need your own data structure. Right, like yes. this is step one. Um, you should implement data structures if you can prove to me with a benchmark that you need this data structure, or because you're doing it for educational reasons. Yeah. Mm. If neither of those are the case, don't do it. Reuse some other implementation. Right. But but barring that. Um, I think that unsafe is intentionally a source of friction, right? Mm. If you need to write unsafe, it means step back and think really hard about what whether this is really what you need to do. And very often the answer should be, actually, it's okay. I can, I'm okay with having the bounds check there or doing reference counting or something and then having it not be unsafe, right? Mm. It should be exceedingly rare that you truly need unsafe. And if you do, you better have like benchmarks to demonstrate why that is the case, uh, that you cannot get away with the safe way of doing things, whether that is taking a lock, using reference counting, cloning things more than usual. Like those approaches are often plenty good enough and avoid the, the need for mm. unsafe. And if you can, you should just do that instead. Um, but but unsafe is there for a reason, right? Which is if if it is truly the case that this is the right thing for your application for your code, then you should use unsafe. Um, the the way I like to think about unsafe is it's not that it's really an escape hatch, even though that is how it functions. It mm -hmm. is a way for you to explain invariance to the compiler that it cannot check itself. Mm -hmm. Unsafe does not allow you to do unsafe things. Unsafe is a way for you to say that something is safe 
in a when the compiler can't check it itself. It's sort of like a signature, like you've signed off on this yeah. being safe rather than the compiler having signed off on it. Human being safe. checked rather than compiler yes. checked. Yeah. Very much so. The name uh, unsafe sounds really unsafe in this scenario. And, <laughs> to, and I think explain. that's on purpose, right? Yeah. Like I, I think arguably the unsafe keyword in Rust yeah. really means safe or manually yeah. checked or something right like it like it means this block does things that in isolation might be considered unsafe but in this particular mm. instance i promise you that it's safe that's what the unsafe yeah. keyword really means there um mm. but i think it was i think the, the developers of rust were correct in choosing the word unsafe <laughs> precisely because it sounds unsafe right like <laughs> you should not be using this willy-nilly you should be really careful about using it and making sure that it, it truly is the right thing for you it almost sounds like the matrix code, right? Don't don't send the humans to do the machine's job. So like, yeah, humans, no, humans really. guaranteeing that this is safe. And then, well, that's actually unsafe. Then the, the machines are telling they're unsafe because we, we cannot guarantee. I mean, unsafe yeah. is really just a way to say there are some things that the Rust type checker, the Rust borrow checker aren't sophisticated enough to reason about. Right, like they're invariants that cannot be represented in the type system in a way that the borrow checker knows that something is is truly safe. An example yeah. of this, right, is um, imagine that you're implementing a mutex yourself from scratch. Mm -hmm. like you're implementing a lock. Yeah. Fundamentally, what you have is lots of pointers to one thing, mm. and you're saying you're allowed to mutate through this pointer right now. Yeah. There is nothing that the Rust borrow checker can do to realize that this is true because it's it's not statically checked. It's at runtime, I do this like magic atomic things on a Boolean flag to ensure mm. that at this point in time, there is exactly one thread one, that yeah. will be accessing this pointer and therefore it's okay to mutate through it. Mm. But all of that interaction with like CPU atomics and stuff, the borrow checker and the Rust compiler and type checker, they don't know how to check that. That's just something that you as the programmer, you've made really sure that the only time you ever try to give out this exclusive reference is if you have in fact taken that flag. And for atomics reasons, only one thread can have the flag set at a time. Yeah, and that's yeah. when you use unsafe to say, trust me, compiler, I have checked that I uphold all of your safety invariants. And and given given the scope of Rust and, and the 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 domain of all possible Rust programming, you know, Rust programs that, that you can write, how frequently do you think people need to get into unsafe thing? It, because I, it, I it think seems it's becoming like a, more and more rare. Uh, okay, because yeah. I think one one nice thing about Rust's unsafe is that it lets you encapsulate unsafety. Um, mm. And you can see this in the standard library, right? The standard library mm. provides a mutex type that is entirely mm. safe to use. Mm. Internally, it has to use unsafe, but it can yeah. present an entirely safe interface. And I think mm. this is one of the sort of core value propositions of Rust, actually, is that it allows you to express um, these kinds of, or, or to write code that relies on these manually checked invariants, but then present them in an interface where all of the safety can be machine checked, mm. right? Like above that layer, you can rely on the standard type checker, the standard borrow checker. And I think that's yeah. a really powerful um, abstraction mechanism, um, mm. which is, and I think what's happening over time is that 
for more and more of the use cases where previously you had to use unsafe, someone has probably built a safe library that does that for you so that yeah. you can just use a safe interface and the unsafety is encapsulated within that library. And therefore, over time, in general, I think you will see people write less and less unsafe and instead rely on crates that, that implement that unsafety safely and present yeah. a safe interface to it. Okay. So I, I just wanted to go back a little and then uh, I would like to ask you about the, the, uh, the distributed systems that, that you're working on, on the database, quote-unquote database, which is a like data flow thing. So... Is this something that you're now building in Rust or is this something um, that you're researching in Rust right now? The, uh, the, the database, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm not working on the database anymore. Um, mm. So the database was the, the work for my PhD. Um, yeah. And so when I, when I graduated uh, end of last year, th that was sort of the end of that project um, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Mm. Um, uh, in the sense of like, I'm not, it's not a project I'm, I'm working on anymore. Um, okay, okay. but that, that was entirely written in Rust. It's not just sort of mm. research with Rust, but, but it was more when I started writing it, I was like, I think Rust is the right language to implement this in. It was not mm. intended as a research into Rust, uh, project at all. It mm. ended up being a little bit like that, but, but that was not the intention. The intention oh, okay. was to do research on, um, essentially, how can we build a faster, better database that's more suited for modern applications? Mm. Um, and we have to choose an implementation language. Rust seems like a good one for systems programming that has a lot of concurrency, so mm. we write it in Rust. Um, um, okay, okay. And it, it was a little bit of a risky proposition at the beginning because when I started that project, it was shortly after Rust's 1.0. So like mm -hmm. it was a young language with a small ecosystem, um, and, and we've we've definitely been through a lot of iterations of us helping make the ecosystem and the language better, and then that making the code better. So there's been sort of a a nice synergy there in a sense. Yeah. Um, and and what and, what is the stuff that you're working on these days then? Like because I'm curious about the what are you using Rust for uh, in in your day to day things. Well, so so now I work at um, at AWS, um, yep. and specifically, I how to phrase this. So I maintain the tooling for using Rust at Amazon. Ah, okay. So basically, ah. any any project at Amazon, any engineer at Amazon that decides to build things in Rust, uh, mm -hmm. I maintain the sort of um, internal build system support for Rust, internal development support for Rust, um, mm. some of the internal libraries for internal services that are written in Rust. Basically, like the the internal view of Rust at Amazon. Mm. Um, and, and one thing that I, I like about that is it gives me a lot of exposure to real world use cases for Rust, like how a large population of developers use Rust. Uh, mm. and how they use it, and what things they need from the tooling, from the language, from the standard library, uh, from the ecosystem. Uh, and then I can take steps to try to improve those things. So I'm in mm. a position where it's true that some of the work I do is sort of internal and, and benefits the, the AWS engineers. Mm. But at the same time, a lot of the work that I do 
sort of trickles back up to the the open source ecosystem. So yeah. I've made a bunch of modifications to to cargo, for example, that mm. have been to either fix problems or implement features that were needed internally um, and and that I realized would probably benefit the larger community as well. And okay. so it puts me in this really interesting position to be in where I get to see all this use and then use that to inform changes to the to the the larger ecosystem as well. Do you nice. embed yourself in the in the dev teams? Because I've 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 held a similar role at a certain point, and uh, the thing that influenced me quite a bit was well, actually trying to work with the teams or fix some of their problem. I mean, just step in and work with them, just so because sometimes it's hard to um, get a grasp on the the requirements, so to speak, if you haven't experienced it for yourself. So. I would try to sort of, you know, work with them for one or two weeks. And that would sort of be like, ah, yes, I kind of understand, you know, it it helps understand the friction points. Sometimes it even shows me friction points they're not aware of. Right. Um, um so so I'm in a somewhat weird position where my team is very small. It's basically just me that specifically <laughs> works on Rust. Um like Amazon and AWS specifically is uh doing a lot of investment in Rust in terms of adopting people to uh, build things in Rust. They also have the Rust platform team, which sort of is working basically only on external Rust. Like mm. they're not an internal team. They're sort of a a bunch of open source contributors to Rust oh. that are working sort of on okay. behalf of AWS, but in the public sphere on Rust. Mm. Um, but my team, which is sort of that internal Rust team, is currently just me. Um, mm. And so... I sort of don't have the, uh, I have too many things to do yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. not enough time to do them. Um, yeah. But what I do try to do is sort of be involved in larger changes that are sort of hairy in some sense that the teams have where they will sort of um, sort of CC me on their PRs or something so that I get to see the process that they go through and give feedback on how they write the, their code, how they use the language. Um and also sort of take part in, if they're trying to educate developers, get some insight into what works, what doesn't, uh, or, or try to help in that process. Um, mm. uh, and similarly, I try to also, when I develop internal libraries for internal services, a lot of that is also like I'm interacting with lots of other services at at Amazon, right? So, so I get that same experience of I'm writing things in Rust in the internal ecosystem, interacting with real services. Um, hmm. and, and so that has also given me a lot of exposure to, to what that feels like. Yeah. yeah nice. So to, to, uh, I don't know to what extent you can, you can talk about this because, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like, what is the, what is the depth or breadth of projects at Amazon in Rust? Like, what are they using Rust for? I know that there is Lambda runtime, obviously, though, that is something very public, you know, um, so what is it is it like web applications is it something like managing systems or is it something like virtualization i don't know so what what kind of the um, use cases that that amazon is applying rust for uh, amazon is using rust for a lot and mm. and more and more over time it's it's mm. a language that's seeing a very um a very like exponential adoption curve um, I don't think I can I can speak necessarily directly to like which projects or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, but of course, but yeah. it but it is a language that's that's very much seeing like a lot of adoption, a lot of traction, both mm. from engineers, um, so both new engineers and current engineers and principal engineers, 
um, but also from like leadership who are excited about some of the prospects of Rust, um, hmm. both for like Amazon and for the world more generally. Um, yeah. And so I think there's a lot of belief in it and there's a lot of support for it. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, driving force behind adoption yeah. as well. Nice. So, I, and then like, I see that, so you're writing or almost, you know, at the end of the process of writing Rust for Rustations, you you are at the, um, sorry, my dog is interrupting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I see that you guys, you you guys have cats and I'm a dog person. <laughs> yeah. I want I want um, a dog too. I just need to convince uh, my girlfriend that it's okay to get more animals. <laughs> yes, certainly. Maybe you should get a crab first. You know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> anyway, um, so you know, you, you writing a book is is itself is like a huge project, and then you're you're dealing with a lot of open source stuff, and then you're obviously supporting you know a, at your work, you know, all these things. Where the hell do you get time to stream like? fucking eight hours of you know, things how is it even possible uh like you know, six hours and then two hours and then four hours and then you keep you keep doing so much stuff you know i've i've been asking myself the same question and i think my, <laughs> my girlfriend's been asking herself the same question too um uh you know i i don't really have a good answer for this i think um so so while I was writing my book, the, the way this worked out in practice was I was writing uh, three times a week in the evening. So like after mm. work, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I would Oof. just like lock myself in my office and write. Um, mm. But even then, like I have Tuesday, I have Thursday and I have the weekend. <laughs> and so like I can do a stream on like a Saturday every other week. And then I still have most weekends to myself. Yeah. So I think... I think for projects like this, there there never is time. You'll never just have time to do these things. No. You need to take time to do them. And that's not always easy, but like instead of watching, I don't know, five episodes of some the, <laughs> the next show I'm currently you're, following you're not, on Netflix. Or like I, I thought I thought you're you're forced to watch, you know, Amazon Prime Video and then every show that is gonna come in and then they, they have like a quiz or something in your performance no, appraisal at Amazon. Luckily not. There's there's a lot of stuff I wouldn't necessarily watch. But like, for example, I'm uh, I'm rereading the Wheel of Time series because I think mm -hmm. it's fantastic. Um mm -hmm. I'm also re-watching like Pokemon because it's great. Um because why not? But instead of watching another five episodes of Pokemon or like yeah. read another five chapters of a book that I've already written in the past, what if I yeah. instead do a two hour stream? Right. Yeah, so, yeah. so like it, it's more just taking the time to do it. And mm. sometimes it can be hard to motivate it. Um, mm. And that's why people don't do it. Mm. For me, I think I, I lucked out a little bit there in that um, when I first did like my first couple of streams, there mm -hmm. was just such a, a positive response that it's mm -hmm. become a um, a sort of positive feedback loop, yeah. right? Of people yeah, are yeah, excited yeah. for another stream. I do another stream, people are happy and then more excited. And that makes yeah. me want to do another one, right? Yeah, so I'm yeah. sort of seeking out opportunities to do it. And and it really yes. just is fun. It, it feels like uh, I'm doing a very rewarding pair programming session. So yeah, it doesn't yeah. really feel like work. But writing mm. sometimes feels like work because you mm. need to get through the chapter. Mm. But for for these videos, like it's it's fun. It's fun because I I choose to work on things that I think are interesting. I choose to stream on topics that I think are interesting to try to explain. Mm. Um, 
they're interesting data structures, they're interesting algorithms, they have interesting applications. So it's just, it's really sort of passion projects for me. Um, mm. And that, that makes it really easy to motivate spending time on them. Yeah, yeah. I think that makes sense. I mean, again, I mean, this is this is super valuable um, thing that you're doing, obviously. You know, this, this is super exciting. To, I, I especially like the crux of Rust things, which are, I think, much easier for me to grok <laughs> than, than the bigger topics. But um, yeah, that's... it's it's interesting actually that that you mentioned that because w when I initially started, right when when I started mm -hmm. doing these these live coding streams, um, the the sort of super long ones, I did it because I thought that was what was missing, right? Yeah. That I think it's really hard to pick up a language like Rust for real use cases on your own mm -hmm. because you if you start building anything but the most trivial thing. You're going to keep getting stuck on like the borrow checker or the type checker or not knowing what a particular feature in the standard library is or how to read type signatures. Like it's just, you feel like you're constantly hitting your head against the wall and that's not a very rewarding way to learn. So my observation was, well, I know how to navigate those things because I've been working with the language for a while. So what mm. if I just program something and then people get to sort of follow along the process as if they were building it themselves, but they don't have to get stuck on all the, I don't want to call them simple things, but all of the 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 stuff you would otherwise just be, would just end up chewing up 15 minutes at a time of your time because you had to stop, read the documentation, and then come back. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that that really ties into the thing that you uh, talked about before, like, you know, experienced people, you know, explaining the the so-called you know thinking in Rust and you know the, the the pitfalls or the corner cases or because you can get easily demotivated right when you're hitting those kind of things you can you feel like oh you know I don't know how to do this I'm gonna get demotivated and I'm I'm, I, I, I'm not able to continue with this yeah exactly and, and mm. also I think I wanted to capture the fact that if you're an experienced developer you also get stuck. You also make yeah. mistakes. You make poor design decisions that come back to haunt you later. And you need to like backtrack out of them and figure a way to like restructure your code or whatnot, right? So I think that's a valuable part of the experience and of the, of the teaching as well. And I wanted to capture that as part of the videos, which is why the videos are not really edited and why they're six mm. hours long is because this is like truly what the development process is like. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but then for Crust of Rust, what happened was people were observing that there are a lot of sort of challenging topics that come up over and over and over again. And mm. that it would be nice to have a sort of thorough explanation of them that you can actually just link people to or go look yeah. up, right? In the mm. long programming streams, I do cover many of the same topics, but it's sort of spread all over. It's hard mm. for you to like, if you, if you feel like you mostly understand what, what we're building or how to build it, but you just really struggle with, um, I don't know, lifetime annotations yeah. on types, then there's no real video I can point you to where you could go read about it or go watch just this segment of this video because that's mm. not how the videos are structured. So yeah, Crust yeah. of Rust was my attempt at taking the almost the most frequently asked questions or the most hairy, isolated topics and be like, I'm going to do a video just on this so that there's a place where that thing is explained well. Um, mm. And I think that combination works really well. Nice, yeah, yeah. So, what is your? Uh, because I want to get a bit more into the language of of Rust with you now. So you know, I'm I'm wondering. So, what is your favorite feature of Rust, or or one or two favorite features of Rust? I don't want to box you or pin you down, 
Hey, nice pun. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> but but I uh, you know what what would be things that that you think, oh, this is this is, you know, uh this is something that resonates with me or this is something that I reach out a lot, you know, like in terms of rust features. Or what um, would you recommend to other people? Hey, this is super cool. You you really should understand this, you know, to to use it in your programs better. So I think there are two separate questions in there. One is sort of what is the the best feature, the, the most useful feature, and mm. the other is what do I think people really should learn? Yeah. And, and I think those are different. Uh, or mm. at least at least I think my answers to the two are different. Yeah, yeah. Um for for favorite feature this touches on something we've talked about before but I just really like that I can express what I mean. Mm. Right? Like I can I can write types and interfaces and function signatures that have only the requirements and exactly the requirements that are in my head and sort of um express that in the type system and then have the compiler check it like that, mm. that it's just extremely valuable to me because the number of times this has caught bugs that would just end up being weird runtime bugs that I wouldn't find for a year in some other code base it it just saves me over and over again things like uh the send and sync bounds to make sure that things mm. are actually thread safe uh or static bounds to see that they like you don't send a reference to a new thread that might end up being dangling like it's just really it really appeals to me that rust thing checks things at compile time rather than runtime mm. um i think to me that is sort of the biggest um the biggest feature of rust and also the biggest pain point for most people who pick up rust right is <laughs> yeah. that it's so hard to get your program to compile yeah right but to me that is the feature which is yeah if it yeah. compiles you have to spend much less time doing runtime debugging which is much more of a pain at least in my mm. experience mm. um of course the challenge there is people are used to runtime debugging they're not used to compile time type debugging And yes. so it just feels like such a chore it feels hard to work your way through. Yeah. Um, which then brings me to what do I think people should learn? Mm -hmm. Uh and that is I really think people should learn how to read, understand and debug uh trait bounds in Rust. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. we talked about flatten right of yeah, yeah, having yeah. something that uh implements iterator where all of the items also implement iterator. knowing how that's expressed in bounds or if you see those bounds how to read them or if you get a compiler error that says that those bounds are not met how to figure mm. out why they're not met because the compiler sometimes doesn't quite give you enough information i think that's just a critical skill in rust and something that it takes a long time to learn it's not trivial yeah. but mm. it's just so valuable because that's as you work in work with more and more advanced code bases and more and more advanced libraries and more things take advantage of these features that's where the real gold lies and that's where the most headache lies if you don't understand it well yeah yeah so as you said like you know rust is helping you in building a richer model using types when when you're when you're doing the compile time so um i, I know potter can relate to this as well because he he also works in closure and we you know we we do the dynamic things a lot and for us or uh, maybe you know potter i don't know what your experience is but i'm going to propose something so you can add to that or you can you know uh -huh. <laughs> say whether whether this is something true or not because when you're thinking in in the compile time this is something that i'm i'm 
thinking from the perspective of Haskell or writing Scala using Scala Z or something like that is that you know you the, the abstractions are 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 a bit more harder when you're doing the debugging at the at the runtime because at the runtime you're dealing with the context you know the data you know what what you're dealing with but when you're when you're dealing with the compile time your your domain of the knowledge or your domain of errors your domain of the uh, the, the type type domain it seems to be a bit more challenging uh, that, that's what i think uh, i'm not sure if water you you, you you're, you're same, a level uh, no i you know what you mean but you're like a level of abstraction away right yeah. like in in enclosure you're acting on the data and like, hmm. data is a very popular word in closure um yeah. so <laughs> but like you're in the context and like, let me data... tell you about lisp yes <laughs> yes yes <laughs> pretty exactly much. but yeah but like the, it, you're in the context right so it's very concrete like that you hmm. know um it's you basically have a map of data and like it's very concrete and it, it ties closely to the domain so it's it feels very direct which is a large hmm. part of the appeal and hmm. and there's i uh, i still love programming closure there's a lot of problems that are well served by it um i get the feeling in 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 rust or statically typed languages like you you're you're it's it's a bit like i don't know it feels like when i uh when when i got like the at my university course on like uh um um yeah numeric algebra and things like that it's it's like you have to make that that swap from um, from like the concrete thing to like one high, you know, one mm. order of abstraction higher, you know, like all of a sudden you're doing math with letters, like that idea. And that takes a while to sink in, you know, but it allows more succinct, um, expression of, of, um, of, yeah, of, of ideas. And I feel mm. like, you know, decent type systems are kind of like that. And mm. yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right. I think it's it's more abstract reasoning, or or um, it it really feels more theoretical. Maybe is yeah. the right word. Yeah. Um, it's further removed from the data. That's also certainly true. Mm. Um, I I don't know that it's even more succinct. Um, mm. I think mm. the the reason why it's worthwhile to be able to reason at that level is it because it lets you write. Um, programs with it, it lets you write more general purpose programs mm. right your programs are not about the specific data that you happen to run them through you're mm. actually expressing the sort of theoretical bounds on your program it, yeah. it, it's sort of it it's it's bordering on the line of formal verification right yeah, it's not quite yeah. there but yeah, but yeah. if you're using a formal verification language like um, yeah, you're using something or, like Coq or, or Daphne, yeah. right? Mm. If you're using some of those languages, there you're really just entirely in the theoretical realm, right? Yeah. Of saying there exists a value in this domain of types mm. that lets me prove this particular property or, or something like it, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, th there it becomes even more abstract because you can't even really run the thing, mm. right? Um, and I think Rust certainly straddles that boundary of sometimes you just need to be able to reason in the abstract, and and that is harder. It's, or I don't know if it's harder or just something we're less used to. Um, yeah, but yeah, but it yeah. is different. Certainly, it's, it's a skill. Um, I I feel like it's something you have to we. It's something you have to do and train and become good at. 
Right. Yeah, and I think it's also very foreign, right? So if mm. you if you take even very experienced developers coming from a language like C++ or Java or Go and bring them to this, they don't have a prior that they can use, mm. right? So if if you're if you know C++ and you go to Go, or you know mm. Go and you want to go to Java or Python for that matter, um, it's pretty easy to pick up a new language in mm. general. Right. If you know three languages, learning a fourth is not that hard. For many of these languages, that are fundamentally fairly the same. Yeah. Um, but Rust feels different because it requires this, as you say, sort of more abstract or theoretical thinking that just isn't required in most of these other languages. You don't need to think about trait bounds and like mm. existential types and like like that's just not in your in your terminology and your nomenclature mm. is not something that is in your brain. Um, and suddenly you need to learn that skill. And I think experienced developers in particular are so used to being able to just pick up a new language that when they see this, they go, this is unnecessary complexity and then throw up their hands and go, this language is stupid. Um, <laughs> and, and I yeah. think that's really yeah. unfortunate. I, I understand mm. why that's the reaction. Um, I, I, and I don't have a good answer for it. Like I think, <laughs> I think it's, I think this is why people who do go on to pick up Rust then go learning Rust made me a better Java programmer, mm. is because they learn that skill, and it turns out you can use it really well in these other languages too. It's just not necessary in the other languages, mm. whereas in Rust it really is necessary. Yeah, I, I it, to be honest, like my experience sort of like resembles how how it. Got into closure and 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 Lisp, right? It's it's a similar thing that you have to learn new concepts to be able to be productive in these languages, like the the actual functional program. And it's it's a, a totally different way of thinking about how you write something, um, and it pays off because you pay, take that back if you go to some other language. And I get a similar feeling with Rust, or at least like my learning experience has been very similar, where I struggled in the beginning. Um, quite a lot until like some new concepts and new ways of reasoning about about the code or about the invariance of my code um you know settled in and like you said like i that i i can you know definitely <laughs> acknowledge what you're saying like you take that back into another language and you, you you've learned a new skill that's transferable absolutely hmm. so we we obviously this is you know I, this is a Rust podcast, so we're going to you know say Rust is awesome and everything. You know, this is everybody should learn Rust, and if you are not, you know, you, you have to learn Rust anyway. And you know, coming from me, that sounds a bit weird for the people who are listening to my Defend podcast as well. <laughs> but I'm I'm thinking, you know, uh, because this this is another type of thinking, right? I mean, closure gives me the dynamicness and the JVM and then reach and that kind of things, and then Rust gives me a different way of thinking about things and to expand my knowledge. And as as Walter was pointing out, like this is more about learning the paradigms to make ourselves a better programmer and solving problems in a better way. That's the whole, whole, whole goal anyway. So, um, so John, in, in your point of view, what are the crappy things in Rust? I mean, maybe in a much more politically correct way. What are the challenges when, I'm, when somebody's writing a Rust program? Um, so I think there are... I think there are a couple of things that are unfortunate in Rust. Mm. Uh, or that suck in Rust. The, yeah. the phrase, <laughs> phrasing is that they both work. Um, I think the first of them is that the learning curve is very steep. Hmm. And 
<laughs> it's weird because I think it it sucks. It's a problem, but I don't yeah. think it's a problem we should fix. <laughs> or yeah. or rather, I think it's fundamental to what Russ is trying to do. Mm. Yeah. Uh, if someone magically waved a wand and made it easy to learn, but you learned all the same things, then that would be great. <laughs> but but yeah. I sort of think that like Russ's value proposition is we introduce these additional things that make for better programs and better programming environments and better programmers, but you need to learn them. And mm. when you need to learn new things that are non-trivial, that's harder to learn. Yeah, um, yeah. But but it, but it very much is a problem. And I think in particular, it's a problem because it it makes adoption much slower. It's harder to convince people to pick up Rust because they try it over a weekend like they're used to doing with other languages yes. and just don't really make any headway and just feel frustrated. Um, and I think that's really unfortunate. Mm. Um, I think another problem with Rust is that um, the the language is still quite young. Mm. Um, and and you can particularly see this in the, the ecosystem around Rust, that even though Rust has a lot of the sort of tooling that you need, like formatters, linters, all of that stuff, um, when you start looking at library support for things that the open source community doesn't care about, mm. that's much harder. Think of yeah. something like um, the Oracle database, yeah. right? Which is used a lot in like enterprisey environments. No one in the open source world really cares about Oracle DB, so there aren't <laughs> yeah. really good bindings to Oracle yeah. DB because though the Rust has been a very open source focused language, now that's changing, right? A lot of companies are picking it up, but mm. that means that in that interim period, those libraries just were never written, or if they were, they were never super well maintained. Mm. Um, similar for things like. IBM DB2 or any of yeah. the other sort of very enterprisey databases um, yeah. or, or other sort of tooling and services that just open source people don't use, then no one really wrote libraries for them. And therefore, companies are hesitant to pick up the language because a library doesn't exist for the thing that they need to exist. <laughs> yeah, it's kind right, of so a, there's like know, a yeah, uh, and, and situation. It's a little bit hard to get out of this too, because the way that those are built is that languages that, that is that companies pick it up who need those things and then build it themselves. But that's a large upfront adoption cost. Um, and so I don't really have a good solution for it, although it is hmm. something that I think is improving slowly but surely. I think hmm. in these um, cases, companies like Oracle and IBM will eventually provide them. Um, yeah, there's a little bit of chicken and egg problem, right? Like they will only do it if there's enough adoption of the language and there's not adoption of the language until the thing exists. But I do think we're seeing now that companies are starting to pick up the language even mm -hmm. though those things don't exist. And therefore we sort of get the the wheel spinning. I think um, Rust definitely jumped that hump like for a lot of more smaller languages. This is absolutely a problem and they just sort yep. of never gain the traction. But... I would think like with AWS, for example, making a very public uh, backing of the of Rust, and I think Microsoft did a similar thing, like with you know these giants of the industry sort of putting their weight uh, and the reputation behind the language. I think Rust has kind of jumped that. It's I feel like that's really just add time, right? Um, I, I think so too. I think you're right. Hmm. Um, I think another problem that Rust. Again, this is, this is not really with the language itself, but maybe more about positioning, is that I think Rust is maybe 
misrepresented or misunderstood or was miscommunicated early on as like the new C. Um, yeah. yeah. Which I think is not the right way to think about Rust. I think you can use Rust where you used C, but I don't think that that's the thing to focus on, right? Like I think if if anything, the place where Rust is going to make a much bigger difference is like Java programs or maybe even Python programs that mm. like currently are much like an order of magnitude slower than they could be, right? Mm. If you convert a C program to Rust, you get some more safety and that's good. But in terms of like actual impacts beyond safety impacts, which are important, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's not that much to measure in difference. Yeah. Um, mm. but, but I think Rust is a language that is like as nice to use as, or in my opinion, nicer to use than, than Java or, or Python, but, but also as just a more efficient language and a more expressive language. And I think that that is a value proposition that sort of got lost in the messaging in the early days. I think mm. we are starting to see that now, but, but I think that, um, that sort of caused a bunch of people to go, oh, I don't care about Rust. That's just for C people. Mm, um, yeah. When I think it could have benefited a lot more people. Mm. In, in terms of the language itself, like there, there are certainly shortcomings there too. Like I think, um, I mean, I think there are some very technical problems that, that I don't know are, are important to get into um, mm. that, that are more yeah. like this trait <laughs> implementation shouldn't exist in the standard library. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But like that's not super important. Um, yeah. Uh, I think in terms of technical challenges with the language, um, the biggest one is probably the story around asynchrony at the moment. Like if yeah. you want to do asynchronous IO, um, mm. it's just a little bit of a pain. It's gotten mm. much, much better. We Now mm. that we have async await, uh, Tokyo is a really mature runtime and yes. that like yeah. just sort of works. But But there's been a lot of like, messaging problems around how to do it. It was a long journey to get to where we are. Um, there's a lot of outdated resources out there, a lot of confusion about what the right way to do things is. Mm. And none of it is standardized, right? Like it's mm. not in the standard library um, yeah. or, or much of it isn't. And so you end up with these competing libraries where it's hard for users to make an intelligent sort of choice between them. Um, you end up with these runtime incompatibilities, which sort of Rust was supposed to avoid, where mm. if you like use a an asynchronous I/O resource from this crate, but use this other crate as an executor, and suddenly you get a runtime panic, and you're like, yeah. "This shouldn't be possible <laughs> in Rust," and then everything gets weird. Yeah, it, it's an unfortunate state of affairs. I, yeah. I think it is something that's going to slowly but surely resolve itself, but but currently that's certainly a big pain point. Mm. Um, uh, I, I think another pain point is around um, around unsafety. Like I think yeah. Rust's choice of having unsafety be a part of the language is valuable. Um, mm. If you look at something like Python, right? What what they did instead was, uh, if you want to do things that require these unsafe operations, write a native module in C. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is sort of a cop out. Right, that's yeah. just saying Python. The entirety of Python is safe. There is no unsafe keyword. <laughs> but learn Except this other language. Just... Like that's just like for Rust. I think at least I think it was the right choice to have hmm. the 
unsafe language and the safe language be the same language. Mm. Um, and unlike C, not to say everything is unsafe, but there is <laughs> yes. actually a safe subset of the language, which we want to be the primary subset. Mm. Um, but I think the challenge lies in um, the education of what it what unsafe means. Mm. Um, I almost wish that the the Rust book or something else was very clear about don't use it unless you know that it's actually safe. In yeah. some sense, it's too easy to write unsafe code. Mm. Or to use unsafe APIs, maybe is a different way to phrase it, mm. right? Like um, if you have a, a slice in Rust and you want to pick out a particular element, there is, mm. you can just like index with square brackets, right? And that yeah. works. You yeah. just give it an index and you get a, a panic if it's out of bounds. Yeah. But there's also like a get unchecked, which is yeah. an unsafe function. You give it an index, it doesn't do a bounds check and it gives you mm. back the element. Mm. Now, this function is unsafe because it's wildly undefined behavior if you try to get an element that's out of bounds with it. But mm. it's trivial to call it, right? If you measure yeah, exactly. and like the bounds check shows up in your performance benchmarks, you just stick unsafe there and you're fine. Yeah. But like you re there's like a lot of implications there that I think people don't really realize to so just stick unsafe there and it compiles and works. And mm. I almost wonder if that friction should have been higher. Mm. Um, mm. Or that there should be more guardrails in place to be like, require a safety comment or something like i really think it needs to be even more severe um, i think i think it should the compiler should force you to print this out and then send this to four other rust developers and then they actually sign it right. on paper and then you send it back and scan it and then it's going to check it okay now you know the consequences of using this <laughs> you should yeah, you should I, add that level of bureaucracy around unsafe <laughs> well yeah th this is like it's it's great that it's easy to combine yeah. safe and unsafe Rust, and yeah. that you can have this like encapsulation directly mm. in the language. But it's mm. also really unfortunate that it's so easy to write unsafe. Easy, yeah. <laughs> like, there, I don't have a good answer here. Like, maybe this balance is the right one. <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you, but, but it just feels like a problem that I think many yeah. Rust developers, and especially newcomers to the language, who just sort of pick it up quickly, don't quite understand the implication yeah. of unsafe. Yeah, yeah, but as as you said, you know, the more experience that you gain, then you know, like the people like you and other folks who are who are who have more experience about this, and then putting this message out there, telling, hey, this is this is the reason why it is. Because I mean, even for me, you know, I was thinking unsafe is basically like you know, yeah, really unsafe. But you're you're putting a different perspective on that one. You know, it is safe in a different sense. That that is something that is putting a responsibility on me rather than saying that oh, this part is completely unsafe. That that's not true. But you know. The, the, that message, I think, need to be a bit more um, clear, you know, quote unquote clear in the in the in the documentation, in the community, in in, in the way that people are talking about these things. Mm. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, I, um, I do think there are some there's some really exciting developments there on things like um, Miri, which is this tool that can sort of check some of your at least some of your code for for incorrect behavior, um, or like we're starting mm -hmm. to see Rust model checkers and other sort of formal verification yeah. of unsafe Rust code that I think is really exciting. And I think maybe that's the path mm. forward, right? That if you have an unsafe block, yeah. the compiler will like run formal, formal verification checks and require additional annotations for unsafe code. That would be a world that I would love to be in. Mm. Um, realistically, we won't be there for a while, yeah. um, but, but it's that kind of mm. enforcement yeah, of yeah. the correctness of unsafe that I would like to see.
Nice. So, um, so maybe some other, uh, another question is like, um, what do you think about the, the Rust standard library? Um, and because um, I, I think that Rust famously chose to have like a rather small-ish standard library, um, and uh, which kind of led to the, the ecosystem issues with uh, the, the async stuff, right? Because it's not really, like we've got different runtimes who may or may not be compatible, um, where, um, yeah, other languages take a different approach and they ship with a rather large standard library, yeah, like right? Python. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, where stuff comes battery included, and mm. for a lot of a lot of things like the default, you know, default choice just ships with the language and you know, stuff works out just fine. Um, um, where where do you stand on that? Uh, I think Rust made the right call um, in having a narrow but very deep standard library. Um, and, and it's for a couple of reasons. Um, the first one is that it makes it much easier to maintain backwards compatibility for the language itself. Hmm. Because there are just many fewer things that you yeah. might consider making a backwards incompatible change to. Right? If you think of something like hmm. Python, right? if you wanted to change... Uh, what's a good example of this? Imagine the, that you were thinking of a significant improvement to Python's like arg parsing support, mm -hmm. right? Which is in the standard library. Mm -hmm. But that significant change would require you to change the API in a backwards incompatible way. Now that requires a backwards incompatible Python release. Yeah. In Rust, because the standard library is small, there are fewer things where such a major release might be relevant. Like if, if mm. someone wanted to make a breaking change to the argument parsing thing, that's a breaking change to the argument parsing crate and not to Rust itself. And so it gives Rust a much better story for backwards compatibility for the, the compiler and language. Mm. Um, I think the other reason is because it's really hard to get those things right. Like one thing is it's hard to change them, but it's really hard to get them right in the first place. And mm. I think if Rust tried to ship with them, it would ship with lots of things that are hard to iterate on, hard to improve. We're already seeing this with things like the um, uh, the channel, the like uh, multi-producer single consumer yeah, channel yeah. that ships with the Rust standard library, which is really just, you just shouldn't use it. Like mm. it's not awful, but it's just, there are way better choices out in the ecosystem. And there are like known bugs with the ones in the standard library that they are really hard to fix. Um, and arguably it just shouldn't have been included in the first place. It should have been built as a standalone crate. Um, yeah. and I think they're sort of regretting that and like they should have made it even narrower is sort of mm. the argument. Um, hmm. yeah, I think it's, e it's easier to add and then, than to, you know, remove, right? Because once, once you add it, then, then you're maintaining it forever. Pretty right. Much. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and I do think the Rust commitment to backwards compatibility is a really good selling point for the language. Um, mm. So in that sense, I also think it was the right call. You are right that it means some of these incompatibilities too, like the, the async runtime incompatibility, for example. If there just was a runtime in the standard library and there was no choice, this problem would go away. But what you also lose in that case is the ability to, to have the ecosystem iterate on competing solutions. Right? Mm. I think once you standardize, you lose all competition. 
yeah. it's not quite true as long as you yeah, provide yeah. the necessary mechanisms. But by having this be a task for the ecosystem to solve, you get multiple implementations um, that compete on features. It's like in some sense, it ends up being like free marketplace type, type <laughs> yeah. stuff, right? Um, Hunger Games of crates. <laughs> right, exactly. But I think one of the outcomes that we're starting to see the fruits of, of this kind of lots of people trying different things, is mm. that you end up standardizing only the common interfaces and not the implementations, right? We saw this in the implementation of the future trait, for example, into mm. the standard library. The future trade has gone through a lot of iterations. And part of the reasons why it ended up the way it did was because of a lot of input from the ecosystem about what needed to be there in whatever ended up being stabilized. Um, I don't think there's that much value in competition or if you have lots of competition from products that are essentially the same, like hmm. multiple different runtimes that are all intended for like standard desktop computers. But where I think there's a lot of value is, for example, someone writes an executor that works on embedded devices. Some people write one that works on phones. Some people write one that work on a developer desktop. Um, and now you have these executors that all handle asynchronous I/O and futures. You couldn't stand; they're 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 not compatible, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. You couldn't have you if you stuck one in the standard library, it wouldn't work for the other two use cases because the mm. platforms are too fundamentally different. But what you can do is look at for all of those very different implementations, what are the common features? What are the common traits, the common uh, patterns? And then you stabilize those in order to allow interoperability so that I can write a crate that presents some future that works with any of those executors because mine mm -hmm. doesn't rely on any particular aspect of them. Yeah. Um, and so you get this, this uh, nice way of getting the, the, the sort of common component um, mm. that, that I think you sort of lose if you standardize or yeah. especially if you standardize too early. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, I've been just going through your, your GitHub repository and then, you know, you have repositories rather. So you have like over the over hundred things. So are there any things that you want to highlight? Because I see that you, you made an IMAP, uh, implementation in Rust. That seems like a super hairy thing to do these days. <laughs> because the protocol is kind of wonky. <laughs> well, so the story of that one is actually kind of funny. Um, mm. I didn't write the original implementation. Oh, um, okay. So someone else wrote the implementation, and mm. I needed it because I wanted a super simple email notifier for my Linux desktop because I didn't want to <laughs> run like Thunderbird or anything. I just want a system tray icon that tells me if I have email. That's all I want. Um, but... Unfortunately, that requires like the entire EMAP, IMAP protocol. IMAP protocol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I started using that library and found that there were a bunch of things that like didn't quite work the way I wanted to, or I found bugs and I contributed fixes. Yeah. Um, and eventually got like commit access to the repository. Mm. And then at some point, the, the original maintainer just disappeared mm. um, and didn't publish any new releases. Like, I would open PRs and they would never get merged. Like yeah. they just like vanished. And I don't yeah, yeah. quite understand what happened. Mm. Um, but we we had previously started conversations about me getting publishing privileges for the crate, uh, yeah. but they just sort of disappeared from that conversation as well. Mm -hmm. And so I got in touch with the crates.io team and was like, they've already said I should get publishing permissions. Yeah. Now they've gone silent. I already have commit permissions. There are yeah. a bunch of fixes that I want to get out there. Mm. Can I go through the process to get ownership? 
And yeah. it was like a long process as it should be uh, yeah, because yeah. forcibly taking ownership is not great. Mm, exactly. Um, but, but so ultimately I ended up uh, with ownership of that crate on crates.io and moving the whole mm. GitHub repository to my, to my own sort of fork of it. Um, and so <laughs> nice. at this point, it's like iterated a lot from what it originally was, but it, but it wasn't yeah. originally mine. <laughs> all all it all it took was just just I just wanted to check check my email yeah, and then I give never me a chose to write an IMAP client implementation. I just sort of inherited <laughs> one. Yeah, um, it's open source. Uh, and in it's terms best. of like, yeah, yeah, I know, right? Um, in terms of uh, particular repositories, I would want to highlight. I think um, uh, HDR histogram is one mm -hmm. that I want everyone to know about and mm -hmm. everyone to use, like. People need to stop keeping track of like min and max and mean of mm -hmm. their statistics. Like if you're measuring latency or performance or whatever, don't measure just the average. Don't mm -hmm. measure just the min and max. Use HDR histogram. Um, basically, HDR histogram is a, it's not originally my idea. It, yeah. it was uh, developed by Jill Teen for, I think for Java initially. Um, mm -hmm. And then I, I just wrote the Rust port. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a, a really cool data structure that very, very concisely represents histograms across a broad range of values. So even if you have some latencies that are in the seconds and some latencies that are in the nanoseconds, you can fairly accurately represent them using a very small amount of actual in-memory space, okay. um, which would not be the case if you tried to use regular histograms with like mm. a bin for every 10 nanoseconds yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's really just sort of a drop-in solution that you just record your values to there. It'll keep them concisely. And then you can get nice histograms. You can get CDFs. Like, you can get proper statistical distribution plots. Um, yeah. It's just, you should just use it whenever you want to collect statistics. Uh, nice. And I wish more people did. Cool. I think that's, it, that's the biggest it, one I want to highlight. <laughs> but is it something related to the Inferno, or is it a different company? No. Different company? Uh, so in, hmm. Inferno is a, a slightly different thing. Inferno mm -hmm. is a port of uh, the Flame Graph tool ah, um, okay. that was yeah. developed by uh, Brendan Gregg. Yeah. Um, so, so Flame Graph is a fantastic tool for, for profiling, mm. right? Where Absolutely. you want to see where your program spends your time in a sort of visual way. And the, the reason I built this port was partially because I wanted to port something from Perl to Rust that seemed interesting. Um, mm. And partially because because Flame Graph is written in Perl, it's really slow for large data sets. Um, yeah. And when I was profiling Noria, the the database, like my profiles would be many gigabytes large, and mm. then I have to generate like the script output of them, and then which is like a tenfold increase in size, and then pipe them into the Perl script, which then does a <laughs> bunch of processing, and it would just take forever. Mm. Um, and so I wanted to port it to Rust, and now we have a Rust version. Um, and it's actually progressed a decent amount beyond the the Perl version too. It has like native support for for highlighting Rust code now. Um, oh. It has like a more efficient JavaScript and CSS representation, so the SVG mm. ends up much smaller uh, and and more responsive. It just at this point it's sort of graduated. Um, yeah, yeah. But but it's a, it's a really nice tool. I'm I'm very happy with that one. Nice. <laughs> but it functionally works very similar to Flame Graph. It's just yeah, yeah. written in Rust, and at this point, in my opinion, better. Faster and safer yeah. flames, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, I think there there is like you know uh, hours and hours to talk, talk about lots of other stuff, and obviously I want to highlight a couple of things you know that you're doing right now. Um, so um, 
maybe a quick pitch about Rust for Rustation. So it's it's now available to purchase already, right? That people can uh, buy the how do you call that? Like the preview version. Rust for yeah, Rustations? so it's it's available for for pre order. Um, yeah. I think the current estimated release date is like mid November. That that might okay. end up being um, being pushed up. I don't know. Uh, yeah, at yeah. this point, I've sent in all of the chapters, so it's sort of yeah. it's mostly now procedural things that need to happen, like indexing mm. and and like actually going to the printer and stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. But you can if if you buy it directly from the publisher from No Starch, um, mm-hmm. then you also get the early access PDF. Oh, um, nice. So you get access to like, I think at this point it's like eight or nine of the chapters um, mm-hmm. that you can just read because they're done. Um, yeah. You get a PDF you can read, and then when the book is actually published, you get the final PDF or or the book whichever yeah, you yeah. choose. Yeah. Um, but is there is there like a um, uh, how do you call that like a um, prerequisite that you think that people should know a little bit to to get into Rust for stations or you know can yeah, this be so, like a so beginner the book? book? The book is very much intended as a follow-on from the Rust book itself. Yeah. Um, it, I would not recommend reading this first. If you're new mm. to Rust, this is not the book for you. And mm. that's also why I chose that title, right? Yeah. So it's Rust for Rustations. So yeah. if you don't already consider yourself a Rustation, this is not the book for you. Um, but it is very much a book that's intended for, if you feel somewhat comfortable with the language, and just want to deepen your understanding about any particular topic, or just yeah. want to like learn the next step of things, um, yeah, yeah. then this book sort of has you covered, right? Like the idea is that here I cover all of the major sort of intermediate difficulty subjects like mm. async, FFI, macros, um, mm. unsafe, concurrency, all of that mm. kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And it's written to be very much a bi-topic reference. So mm. it's not a book you need to read front to back. You just mm. pick the things that you think are interesting and then read and learn about those. Um, awesome. So, so yeah. I have tried to write it in a way where almost no matter where you are in that, that trajectory of I want to learn more Rust, uh, this book will have something for you. Awesome. We'll, we'll, we'll certainly put the link to, to, the, to the No Starch uh, website for this one. So um, any other things that we missed, you know, <laughs> poking your brain off <laughs> something that, 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 that comes to your, your mind <laughs> before we conclude? Uh, oh, actually, one thing I do want to mention about the book yeah. is that if you order it from No Starch, the shipping outside of the U.S. is pretty expensive mm. um, because oh. No Starch is in the U.S., Mm. Um, but it will be available at like local retailers and stuff. Yeah. yeah so it'll be yeah. like, you can, you'll get it cheaper there eventually. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> in terms of other things, uh, let's see. I think maybe what I would say, given that your audience, it sounds like are people who are sort of new to rust or considering picking up rust or, or curious about rust. Yeah. Um, I think what I would say is if you decide to try it out, um, be prepared to learn new things. Hmm. Like it will not be an easy language to pick up, but I do think it's a worthwhile language to pick up. Hmm. Um, And I think because it's hard to learn, you really should start out with projects that you care about. 
right? Like, mm. don't just pick, I'm going to implement a linked list in Rust. Like, <laughs> pick something that yeah. you actually Double think is like, even. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I think you should, you should pick something that you care about, that you think is interesting to build, that you've been wanting to tinker with, like, build a command line tool that like does something neat and that needs to be kind of fast or something. Yeah. But just try for something where you care about the end result and you feel like you're learning something else already. Um, yeah. Because otherwise you're going to get stuck and then you're going to lose motivation because you don't really care about the project and then you're just going to give up. Um, yeah. I think that that that's what basically how the Rust time map thing showed up. Like there is something that you really wanted to solve and then you ended yeah. up implementing the yeah. time map thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. So I, sh or, I should or maybe think about okay, linked you know, lists gonna... really are your thing, you know. Exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, no, I'm not even joking. Like for me, data structures are really cool. And so one of the first things I built was like starting to fiddle with like a concurrent data structure because that's yeah. super interesting. Like I just yeah. really like data structures. So I wanted to try the language for that. Yeah. Just be prepared that like down that path lies on safety. But that's okay the, if that's what you really want to do and learn about. <laughs> I think the community agrees because I can see the most starred repository in your in your repositories is the left right you know thing. So that's like, oh, people are really interested in this stuff anyway. So which makes sense. Yeah, left right <laughs> is really cool. I'm just very happy yeah. with that. Like it's just a cool algorithm, even though it's sort of stupidly simple. It's yeah. I like it. No, I think you should you should explain that now and don't don't leave us yeah, hanging yeah. now. <laughs> oh, so okay, so left right is um it, it tries to solve a fairly simple problem, which is uh imagine that you have some kind of data structure that you have lots of threads that want to read, and it's very rare that you actually write to it. Um mm. so you could put it behind a lock. The problem with putting it behind a lock is that the read like you couldn't have concurrent reads. So you put it behind a reader-writer lock, and now you can have concurrent reads. Um, but the problem with a reader-writer lock is that the readers contend with one another. So mm. imagine that you have a reader-writer lock that internally holds a hash map. Um, if you try to, if you have to take the lock and then do a read in a hash map and then release the lock, you hold the lock for a very short amount of time because mm -hmm. a read from a hash map is very fast. Yeah, yeah. Um, so most of your benchmark ends up being how fast is it to take a lock? And it turns mm -hmm. out the answer is it's very slow. And it's mm -hmm. very slow. It gets slower the more readers there are. Um, they don't exclude each other, but they do contend with each other, making the operation slower for each other. Mm -hmm. um, so left-right is an attempt to solve this problem where um, there are no locks. Instead, you keep two copies of the underlying data structure, the left and the right copy, hence yeah, the name. Yeah. Um, yeah. All of the reads go to one copy, and all mm -hmm. of the writes go to the other copy. And then mm -hmm. when the writer wants to expose the changes to the reader, it flips the two so that the what was left is now right and what was right is now left. So now the readers read from the updated map. The writer sort of backfills the one that it took from the readers um, and then continues doing writes to there. Oh. And there's like some complexity in here of how does the writer know that there are no more readers reading the map that it just swapped? Mm -hmm. um, and so left right deals with, with those kind of things for you. But mm. what this means is that reads do not take any locks. The reads are uh, extremely fast and do not contend with, with one another and basically yeah, scale yeah. perfectly with the number of cores. Awesome. Yeah, I think that, that uh, as we said, you know, if, if data structures are your thing, <laughs> you, can, you can take that as your first project. 
Yeah, I, and like we we talked about how in Rust you can express sort of the the, the more abstract notions, right? So yes. left right is generic over the backing data structure, oh, uh, including yeah. this sort of backfill mechanism. Mm. Um, and I don't know how you would express that in other another language. That's pretty um, neat. Yeah. Nice. So I think I'm, I think on that um, awesome note of left right <laughs> data structures, and then I I think we look forward to more blog posts about how to do double linked list in in Rust <laughs> after this. And maybe maybe both of you should write one. Yeah, totally. Yeah. My, I think my journey with doubly linked lists in yes. Rust. I think that that's going to be my live stream, like me struggling and then banging my head with the, yeah. <laughs> the screen, cool. trying to figure out all this stuff. I'm, I'm not sure people but, are interested in watching me uh, stare at the Google screen for three hours straight, <laughs> um, which, which, to be honest, is still most of my programming. Like, I think I yeah, spend at least half of my time like reading some docs or somebody else's code before I yep. write the line myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I think that that should give us people like the real perspective of you know how, what what programming is because you know the the entire process which is basically multiple Google tabs and then four Stack Overflow tags you know that and then and then using the so called the new AI driven code generation stuff. That's, so right. I can, That's right. I can finish my. In the my future, work. we will we'll write no code. We're just gonna like see that it imported the correct code. Yes, exactly. <laughs> anyway, on that bombshell, for your next data structure, you might try uh, to call it Konami code. Right, so rather than left, right, That's you could do up, up, down, down, left, no, anyway. whatever. Left, right, no. left, right, B, A, start. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Anyway, so uh, John, thanks a lot for 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 joining us. Or I should, I should say, Jan uh, Ferdinand. <laughs> Fuck off. This is this is so difficult for me with the rolling R thing. I'm just gonna give up at this point. <laughs> but it's it's been a pleasure, you know. Thanks a lot for taking the time and um, and doing all this stuff, and and also, you know, all the as I said, the, the hours and hours that you're putting into and then and then putting into um, uh, essentially providing value to the community and then making people understand things, explaining things better. You know, uh, this is something that that um, I, I really respect in in terms of taking time to explaining things to others because this is you know something like Feynman, right? You know, it's not just inventing things, but also able to express it and make it easy for people to understand. So, not to you know, uh, um, to help people not to get scared of, oh, this is too difficult for me or, or to get demotivated. So th that's awesome. And and the amount of open source work that you're doing, given, you know, all the uh, all the repositories that you have on on things and the way that you are um, teaching people and even Rust for Rustation's book, you know, all these efforts. So I think we're very grateful for all the all the kind of work that you're doing. So thank, thanks, <laughs> thanks a lot for, for, for joining, you know, and... Um, no, of course, it, it's been really fun. I think uh, I think teaching is weird because it's such a like a humbling experience as well because mm. it's only when you try to teach things that you realize how much you don't know yes. or how <laughs> insufficient your own understanding is or how yeah. easily you get stuck trying to explain it, which mm. is why I, I really encourage that mm. other people should try teaching too, right? Mm. Like if you're learning, if you feel like you've learned something, Right. Mm. At some point, you you read a blog post, you watch a video, you figure something out on your own. Try to write about it, or yeah. do a tweet about it, or do a mm. short video about it. Like try to teach others because it's a both. It's a great way to help the community, but also mm. it'll really solidify your own understanding. Mm. Um, so I I highly recommend to 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 pay that forward to anyone who listens. It's uh, it's it's almost like uh, in academia, it's like writing the paper, which is a form mm. of teaching as well. 
it's like you do all the research and then you have to you know write the paper and then while you're writing the paper you do all the research again actually yep. because you just realize when writing it down what's missing right and it's, it's yeah. like the act of writing it down sort of crystallizes the ideas out um yeah no it's it's completely true yeah yeah uh, in any case if um if your book is half as good as your explanations in this podcast, it's going to be a must read. I had a great time. So um, <laughs> I appreciate that. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you, for, thank you for joining. Yeah. And we're going to put the links for, I mean, I'm pretty sure people in the Rust community know uh, Jan's Twitter, John's Twitter, and as well as his YouTube videos, but we are going to put the link and we would really recommend, you know, following him on Twitter because I know that you're announcing whenever you're doing the live streams, etc., so people can follow and go and check out Rust for Rustations. And I think it's a good time to start on the Rust book because by the time John's book is going to come out, you'll be ready for reading that book. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. It's, it's an awesome time. <laughs> <laughs> on that, thank you, John. Thanks a lot. Thank you. It's been great.